1: Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. What in the world is happening
0: on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up?
1: To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. How are you doing there? It is the podcast, you know the story. We're going to make economics as comprehensible, free of jargon, and hopefully relevant to all of our lives. I hope you've had a good week. I've had a bit of a fantastic week. And it looks like next week I've got Kilconomics coming up, which I'll talk to John about in a second. If you haven't gone on the website there, it's kilconomics.com. It's an absolute hoot. It's the world's only economics and comedy festival. And now it's the world's biggest economics festival, which is kind of bizarre. In its 10th year, it's going to be a massive week, begins on Thursday in Kilkenny. So all is good. But the podcast this week, I want to talk to you about profound changes in the food industry, in the meat industry, in the economics of farming, and what the implications are for not just farmers. for all of us. But before we get into all all this stuff, again, you know, John, myself and JM, we put a lot of time into it. It costs us a huge amount. We love doing it, obviously, and we love love the fact that that people are listening and engaging and all that. But if you do fancy it, and if you do appreciate it, and if it does make your week a little bit more bearable, your commute a little bit more bearable, consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. And as always, John is with me. How are you? Very good. very good. The old wheels came off the chariot there. <laughs> they did, Jesus, They got their arses handed, didn't they? It was great. Well, it's a kind of an awful thing, and I do apologise to our English listeners that deep down we do have some love for you, but it's not that evident all the time. And uh,
0: Particularly when it comes to sport.
1: Particularly when it comes to sport. I mean, you, you, know, you just can't. I mean, we, our choices between Brexiteers and racists, and we went for racists. I mean, what can you say? But, uh, no, we're just, we're having a chat here in the wake of South Africa's pretty emphatic victory against England in the rugby. Uh, It's not what I want to talk about, but I presume a little bit of you grew a little bit more when you saw the South
0: Africans. (laughs) Just a bit, just a bit. It was fantastic. Jesus, they were,
1: they were absolutely crucified them in the scrum. I think they got their arse handed to them on a plate in the scrum, which is an area which I thought the Brits would be quite good at. Yeah, yeah. But the question is, will this impact on the Brexit vote in a month's time? Ooh. Ooh <laughs> I, well, we, we might do a little Brexit hit, but uh, how was your week, man? It was very good, yeah. I had a good old busy week. Went to see
0: OMD last you week. You are
1: a glutton for punishment. Oh, my God. They were even fantastic. shite in
0: 1981. No, 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 no. Enola Gay. What a great song. But they were brilliant live. They were incredibly camp. I didn't realise how camp they were. But they were brilliant. Interesting thing about that: the crowd at that gig, it was... was They were all
1: 72 and over?
0: Not far off. There wasn't a single person, I'd say, below 50, 55. And 80% of them were male. It was a male audience.
1: It was a very camp male audience. Incredibly camp. I didn't quite realise it. But it was a fantastic gig, the Olympia. That was the highlight of the week. The highlight of the week. Well, I was in Berlin getting schooled by my daughter in the carries-on of Berlin oh, now. She's clubs. a
0: true Berliner now. Yeah,
1: she is. She lives over there. And uh, we sat down with all our mates, and they're all in music college and they all go out clubbing. And literally myself and Shan were like, Oh, really? That happens? <laughs> behind closed doors, so they God. asked. Us, they asked us to go to Berkheim with them, but we said eh, no. I well, don't think so. What's Berkheim? It's some really trendy club in in Berlin, where. But it's a really good policy. You're not allowed to have your phones in Berlin clubs, so you can do whatever the hell you like. And nobody can film it. There's no selfies. There's no evidence. Really? Yeah. And it's a policy. The so what, what do you do? How do they well, police the that? Idea is they take them off you. They take your phone off you.
0: Like, do you check them at the they door? They check
1: your phone. Like they in South Africa
0: where they check, check your for guns. guns. <laughs> we used to
1: be checked for flagons. They check for phones. <laughs> yeah. So that was interesting. That was that was interesting. But Berlin, I, I mean, it's a city I've known for many years. Believe it or not, I was there first on a incredibly eclectic Doki United football tour in mm. 1980, where we actually went. I remember went, you
0: went on that. Yeah. And we
1: actually went to East Berlin. How mad is that? The Doki United under-12s went to East Berlin to play a soccer match. You played East Germans. We played West Germans and then we slept over the border, went in through Checkpoint, Checkpoint Charlie through yeah. the whole thing, through the wall. Wow. I was totally absorbed by the place. Because even then I was a bit of a sort of a politics sort of obsessive. And I have been going Precocious, back. I think you call that. Precocious, yeah, Cubshot, <laughs> <Gumpshire>, pretentious Cupshot. <Gumpshire. laughs> but uh I have been going back, as you know, for years and years and years. Mm. I spent a lot of the late 80s when the wall came down in Berlin. Yeah. And it's one of those really Amazing cities. You also played Borussia Mönchengladbach. Gladbach. We 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 played Borussia Mönchengladbach's. <laughs> yeah, I'd say D team, but you know yeah. these are all. No, I do remember that. These are do all remember important that. milestones. So but, how was this week? with... Well, the... I I, I will tell you what I want. I went I went just to vi- to visit Lucy, but I went to visit a friend of mine who is in the American Academy in Vanzi, a hmm. Korean woman called Suki Kim wrote an amazing book. Oh, yeah. she, was, she, she worked in North Korea. She's the only person who actually reported undercover from North Korea and survived. She lived undercover in North Korea. It's an extraordinary story. But I went to Vansy, and Wannsee's over in the very west part of Berlin. It's beside Potsdam. Potsdam was built by Frederick the Great as this huge uh, palace that would be basically the German Versailles, yeah. the Prussian Versailles. Very beautiful, on the lake, extremely Opulent mansions, except for one thing: it's where the Wannsee Conference happened in 1942, where the Nazis hatched the plan for the Final Solution for the Jews. Right, and it's un, and you can go to the building that this. There was fifteen blokes came up with this Final Solution. Who who who's in
0: that? It's well, Hitler the, and... you know,
1: Hitler wasn't there, oh. uh, but it was it was Goebbels was there. Yeah, Himmler was there and a lot of other, Eichmann, all these people, you know, and a lot of other sort of middle-ranking, crazy, psychopathic maniacs. And what is really, really chilling, John, is you can read the transcript that they all signed. And it is this kind of, like, mechanical approach to how they were going to deal with the European Jewish population. Initially, and the worst thing is they have, identified 11 million people and gone down to different countries, how many Jews live in each country. Wow. And initially what they wanted to do was they wanted to move Jewish people. and They didn't care how they ended up or where they ended mm. up from Germany and the Reich or whatever to these lands in Eastern Europe, out into Russia and Ukraine. And then you can see them going down through this unbelievably ridiculous, demented calculation that that was proving too much hassle. Moving them was proving too much hassle. They were proving to be difficult to move, and this is all written down. Yeah. So we'll kill them all. And it's all written down there in black and white. It, it, and they signed it. But was there a one particular guy who went, you know what, maybe we should execute? No, no you what? have this 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 language, which is like the language of a manufacturing industry. Uh it talks about problems, solutions, problems, solutions. Uh the efficiency of gassing people, unbelievable stuff, and so it gives you a. It's one of the most chilling places I've ever been, and I've been to Belson many, many years ago, and I've seen, read a lot of this stuff. As I think many people listening will have read, and you, yeah. know, you will have read yourself. But when you're there in this kind of nineteenth-century merchant's palatial house, looking out on the uh, on the lake, and then you realise this is where it all started, not started. Because it's Mm. very, very clear when you go there that you would have had to have your head in the sand as a German not to know what was going on Mm. and not to expect what was going to happen to the Jews. That was really quite traumatic. And I think this is the weird thing about Berlin as a city, that it's neither beautiful nor chilled nor opulent in the way other cities are. Berlin is a city which makes you think really makes you think you can feel history there you can feel good you can feel evil you can feel the movement of people you can feel the movement of ideas and it still has that capacity and we might talk about it next week because next week is the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin war yeah yeah we might absolutely. talk about it a little bit more but it it is I think without a doubt and certainly now it's the capital of Europe yeah I mean it's the capital city of the new Europe and it has an extraordinary amount to offer every minute of every day you're there. But one bizarre, kind of really creepy, despotic thing about Vancy was of course Hitler knew what was going on. And what made me think there's a little piece in Van talking about Hitler's way of dealing with the top Nazis and how he divided and conquered, etc. And he used to take them for dinner a lot. Mm. And there was a passage on Hitler's vegetarianism. and Hitler was a vegetarian. And Hitler's vegetarianism was put down to his concerns about animal welfare. <laughs> so this is the man who orchestrated the, the Holocaust, the Second World War, extraordinary destruction of human life, incredible tortures, a barbaric person. And yet inside him was a vegetarian who was worried about animal welfare. And I was thinking this as I was getting the subway back to Berlin from Vansy, And I was also reading uh, online, I think on Twitter, how Burger King had announced this year that it's going to roll out its new vegetable-based burger. Right. Uh, and yeah. I was also thinking when you go to Berlin, I know Berlin is quite a hipster city as well, how many restaurants are vegan and vegetarian? Yeah. And it got me thinking of a change in the way people are eating, what they're eating, the rise in the vegan, stroke vegetarian movement, and why this is happening now. So it's an unusual jump from Van Zee. It was just that that little that little note at the end that Hitler was a vegetarian. Thought, wow, this is really odd because I mean, the, the, you know, the great vegetarians, of course, was George Bernard Shaw mm. around the same time as Hitler, yeah, actually. Yeah. And, and, and Shaw was a vegetarian because he was a, A, he was very concerned about animal welfare, but B, he felt that it was actually not the right thing to do to, to kill animals. And he also thought for his own health, he'd be better off. But I just I remember coming away from that thinking, wow, that's interesting. So what I want to talk to you about is not Hitler and Wanzer or anything like that, mm. but it's actually about people's diets and how they're changing and how the change in people's diets will change the way we look at food.
0: And coincidentally, of course, on Friday was uh, International Vegan Day.
1: Exactly, exactly. And I'll tell you, the, the change in food struck me last week. Remember, I was in Canada last week. You know, I've been traveling a lot, but I'm, gonna, mm. I'm cooling down now, right? Good, good. But when I first was in Canada many, many years ago, I was a dishwasher in a Chinese restaurant. How mad a job was that? <clears throat> and that was in 1986 or 87, I can't even remember. 85 it could have been, right? <clears throat> and I went over as a young fellow. And I remember the Chinese guys who worked with me. I was a dishwasher and then I graduated up to barman in the Chinese restaurant, in Spadina Avenue in uh, Toronto. And the Chinese fellows used to look at me and they never spoke to me. They were Hong Kong Chinese and they just thought, you know, they weren't really that into this Western kid who was pulling pints and uh, serving white wine. But they used to say to me, there can be very blunt Chinese people. And one of them used to say to me, his name is J.D. Lee. And J.D. Lee said to me, he's from Hong Kong, he said, David, you fucking smell. He used to say, I smelt. And I said, that was an unusual thing to say to a person. I'd said to you, you're lovely yourself, yeah. young J.D. Lee. But he said to me, well, they, you fucking smell of cheese. I said, what? <laughs> and then he explained to me how Chinese people don't or didn't drink milk right. and eat cheese and eat butter. Yeah. And they think that we smell of cheese and lactose and milk comes out through our pores and butter. Really? And they felt that was really disgusting. Yeah, And he was being very blunt to me. And I was like... You know, I'm I'm illegal. I don't have, you know, pot to piss in. Please don't tell me I smell. And that was really, that really fascinated me. Then I go to China, and I've been to China about five times. And every time I go to China, particularly Shanghai, all I ever see are Starbucks. And Starbucks, as we know, isn't coffee. It's just milk for Americans, right? So at a certain stage, the Chinese taste buds have changed for, for centuries and centuries and centuries, thinking that Westerners smelled of cheese, and this was disgusting to beginning to drink milky coffee. Now, what happens? What happens is when people get rich, their diets change. And we see this all over the world. When the Chinese get rich, they begin to abandon their adverse opinion of milk and they start to drink milk and baby formula Mm. and cheese in huge, huge, huge proportions. And when they get rich, They begin to eat meat in big proportions. So what we see from all over the world is that the consumption of meat is going to go through the roof. It's already going through the roof and it's going to go through the roof. And as countries like China and India get richer, the middle classes will begin to eat meat. And the irony is that they are the original vegetarians. The Buddhists in India and the Confucians in China, they are now turning into carnivores. Whereas at the same time, if you go to Berlin, the original carnivores, the Western middle class, are turning into vegetarians. (laughs) And this is the way the world works. So basically, their consumption of meat is going through the roof. Our consumption of meat is going to start to fall. Because A, they're getting rich. And B, we are at a level of wealth where we're actually thinking, hold on a second, What is the environmental impact? And then you look at the environmental impact of beef. Beef is a profoundly unenvironmentally friendly way of of extracting protein for humans. 18% of all greenhouse emissions are not from cows farting, actually. They're from belching. I didn't realize that, right? 18%, right? 70% of all arable land in the world is set aside for beef herds. And about 50% of all production of corn and wheat-based animal feed is for cows and, of course, massive water consumption because yeah. unlike in places like Ireland where we have water, you've got, to, you've got to feed them, you've got to grow grass. So what you're seeing is the first big trend is that around the world, the poor countries are getting rich and they're dramatically increasing their beef intake. Mm-hmm. The second big trend is the environmental impact of this Is enormous and this is affecting how Westerners regard meat. The third big trend then is because Westerners are both lifestyle conscious and environmental conscious, we are switching to vegetarianism much quicker than people think. So, for example, 10 years ago, Board Bia says that 4% of Irish people are vegetarians or were vegetarians. Mm. Now it's 8%. That's a doubling. So, if that were to go on, that's a big change I'm not talking about veganism I'm talking about vegetarianism yeah and then the other thing that struck me is the reason that burger king are bringing this stuff in is the science has now got to such an extent that you can mass produce plant based meat alternatives and you can put them on menus of hypersensitive consumers and burger king think they're going to make money on this and they probably think they're going to get a kind of a halo effect in the west of being closer to the environment. So these things fascinate me right now. Yeah. So, and of course, if Burger King do it, then
0: it'll have the domino effect, like McDonald's will follow. So, Kamir, are you, you're saying then that we're on the cusp of a paradigm shift where it's going to change the way we eat, change the way we farm, the economics of farming
1: and agriculture around the world. Absolutely. And you, I can really sense this, you know, when I, and because I travel around a lot, I'm always observing and writing mm. little notes. And- it's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about
0: work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. Yeah, that plush. And the best part, for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's
1: bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Thinking about what's going on, I can really see this shift. So you think those Chinese people I knew who used to say we we smelt of cheese and they're now goblin cheese as if, there's no tomorrow, and they're and baby formula and milk and whatever. So they've they've already shifted. Yeah. Okay. They're they've already shifted. Beef, we know exactly the same. They've already shifted. But at the same time, we're shifting away. And it's like it's almost like a perfect storm. All paradigm shifts. So they can't just be one thing. They need to be three or four things come yeah. at the same time. So the first one is environmentalism here. The second one is massive demand over there. The third one is the uptake in vegetarianism maybe as virtue signaling for some people but what you're not seeing is we're not seeing so much vegetarianism now but if you look at data particularly in the United States of people under the age of 25 a thing called flexitarianism is now very very yeah. prevalent over yeah. a quarter of American kids describe themselves as flexitarian, which so is just gives which, a is, which means is, I'm not really a vegetarian I'm not really a vegan I'll eat a little bit of meat but you know what I'm going to eat a lot less than yeah. my parents ate and then you have stem cell technology. So stem technology is really being championed in the United States, but also in the Netherlands. Yeah. And I'll give you one idea here, right? The Netherlands, there are a research team in the Netherlands who are already creating synthetic meat say that from the cells of one cow can produce 175 million quarter pounders. So this is the wow. stem cell, right? That would take you 450,000 live cows. Yeah. So you can see the, the huge change that's going to happen. This is just growing meat this in is a growing lab. growing meat in a as lab. As opposed
0: to the plant-based
1: burgers. So, so there's two things going on. Yeah. One is the growing meat in a lab, which is basically saying, look, we can, with stem cell research now and production processes in a lab, we can grow meat. Mm. We can identify the proteins and grow them. And if we do that, the upside is enormous in terms of the amount of meat you can grow from one cow's cells. The plant based stuff goes one further. And this is a company called Impossible Meats in the United States. Yeah. Beyond Meat and these ones. And they say, you know what? We are creating right now, and this is what Burger King has bought into a plant based meat synthetic that feels like meat, tastes like meat, smells like meat looks like meat, Mm. all these things. And this has changed everything. So you've got this perfect storm, which is coming right now, of science, environmentalism, a change in people's perceptions of how they eat, what is kosher and non-kosher to eat. I mean that in the more eclectic sense. All of this is coming together. And it has profound impacts, not just for economics, but for society. Because our societies have been driven and influenced and manipulated by the interests of beef producers for hundreds of years. But
0: actually, I also want you to get on to, from an economics point of view, what we talked about before is our friend Schumpeter. You know, if this is creative destruction in the food world, in the burger world in particular, they're still following the burger example. I don't understand why... There isn't a whole
1: new line, like in the in the way, like the car was a much better horse sort of idea. Exactly, right. Well, I think that I think that uh, we're at the early stage of something. Mm. Okay, and something really big. At the moment, plant based and synthetic beef or meat is one percent of global consumption. It's about one and a half billion in Europe, Mm. whereas Europeans spend about one hundred and forty billion odd on meat every year. But if you look at, for example, this morning I had a coffee with oat milk. Okay. Ten years ago, oat milk, soya milk, all these plant-based milks were less than 1% of American and European consumption. Yeah. They're now 15% of milk consumption. And, and, and they're not like milk. You can see oat milk tastes a little bit different, right? Yeah. Sweeter, but isn't it's it? It's a little bit sweeter, but my point is that very quickly... Without anybody really thinking about it, people in the West have started to drink significant amounts of milk substitute Mm. and they feel virtuous by doing it. This is the interesting thing. So if you can imagine that one of the great things about science, it's kind of the scary thing about science, but it's the great thing about science is that science is able to make incremental improvements every second. Whereas you can't do that in agriculture.
0: Yeah, no, I, get that. You can't, yeah, you I can't. Because you can't grow a different cow. Yeah.
1: Right? So what I'm saying is that, yeah, what I'm saying is that there are forces that are enormous at play at the moment. And those forces, I believe, will have a profound impact on agriculture, particularly in this country, mm. because Ireland is an overwhelmingly beef-dominated agricultural industry. Yeah. ninety thousand Irish farms are involved in beef. Can you imagine if in 10 years' time or even 15 years' time, the oat milk type trajectory happens in beef? The prices of beef falls dramatically. The source of beef becomes a laboratory, not a farm. This is a huge impact. I mean, at the moment, Irish farmers are worried about beef coming from Argentina. That's the least of our worries if what's happening in the future is beef coming from a lab. And again, what you see in all these scientific innovations is that initially people say, well, this is not for me because I'm not this type of person and I'm a meat eater and whatever. But actual fact, people adopt, change technology very quickly. Mm. And if it's cheaper and if it's more environmentally friendly and if the generation coming well behind us, our kids' generation say, do you know what, dad? I think it's unpleasant killing cows, killing pigs. I don't think this is the way we should live. I think agriculture could be on the totally wrong side of both a moral argument and economic argument. The economic argument is obvious, is that basically it'll be much cheaper to produce. Okay, think about that 450,000 cows versus one cow yeah. in stem cell. And of course, environmentally, if the environment becomes the key issue that it is now and continues to do so, and you can say, do you know what? It's a choice between meat, And the planet, I think lots of people will choose the planet.
0: But you know the the ironic thing about all this is that back in the 90s, the whole environmental movement was up in arms about the likes of Monsanto and GM foods and GM crops and all the rest. Now, 20 years later, they are supporting that, you know, for the the plant-based meat
1: and all the rest. It's a complete U-turn. I think it's interesting, but but I do agree with you. I mean, I've always thought the environmental movement. The good thing about them is they have no real ideology, which is great. They change with the times. If the science changes, they yeah. change. And if things change, they change. We could actually do a whole podcast on GM or the changing face of the environmental movement.
0: Yeah. Okay. So if we are in this whole paradigm shift, how is that going to impact the global economy? but also the Irish economy since we're so agriculturally based.
1: Okay, well, let's, let's look at Ireland and beef and meat. I think that we underestimate the very negative impact that the interests of beef farmers, who used to be called ranchers, have had on Irish politics, the Irish psyche, the way we look at land, the way we look at property, all these things. I'll give you an example. So before the famine... Ireland was. If you get a train through Ireland, pretty train, it was trained to take you, you know, places mm-hmm. that cars cars don't. Would you be always amazed? There's so much land here. Yeah. There's nobody on it, right? Before the famine, in the 26 counties, there were over six million people living, and one million in the cattle herd. By 1990, there were six million head of cattle in a population that had halved. So the cattle population went up sixfold. The human population went down by half. It's not outrageous to say that land was cleared of humans and replaced with cattle. And then the interests of what were called in the old days the strong farmer. The strong farmer Was the big farmer, the person with lots and lots of acreage. That person was usually an Irish nationalist. If you look at Irish nationalism in the 19th century, the enemy was no longer the landlord, but the enemy was the rancher. And the rancher was the big, strong farmer whose business was based on exporting live cattle to the UK, who didn't want any separation. They didn't want Brexit. Mm. I rexit at the time, right? Because their market was the UK. And after independence, in Ireland, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael largely, largely split on the difference between the interests of strong farmers, who were Fianna Gaelers, and the interests of small farmers and landless labourers, who were Fianna Fáilers. Right. So the whole of Irish political post and during the Civil War, the Civil War split between strong farmers and landless farmers. And again, the strong farmers in the main would have been more Fianna Gael, Gael or Idea and Fina Fall was this slightly more revolutionary, and the reason they were more revolutionary is they wanted shit they didn't have it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you look at the famine being a turning point in Irish agricultural history, where we clear the land or the land is cleared of people, in its place you get cattle. The cattle are then raised in Ireland and export it to England. This becomes the economic model of the country. This is why the field in J.B. Keene is interesting. There was no reason to want to have a field unless you had cattle on it. So suddenly, the impact of cattle and beef on the psyche of the Irish farmer changes profoundly because a field is worth nothing. Like, I mean, you're not, you know, of course, yeah. You're not going to play soccer on the field, right? Yeah. Unless you have cows to put on it. The field is worth nothing, right? So the whole bias of Irish society shifts from an overpopulated country where land is used, potatoes are grown, and people live off the land that way, to an underpopulated country like the Pampas in Argentina where you have large stretches which are run by the interest of cattle farmers. Mm. They become the dominant political class. Then they become the backbone of Fine Gael. They become the backbone of Conservative Ireland. They become the ballast of the right of centre in Ireland. Then you see them emerging again in the European Union, when in 1973, all of Ireland's interests were harnessed from the interest of agriculture, as opposed to fisheries, but, for example. But that was only that was our main industry. That was our main industry. But that the, and tourism. But the question is, if it's your main industry for 150 years if it dominates rural sociology, mm. like I remember my granny years ago in Cork, you know, the strong Fine Gael farmer was the he was, the, the, he was like the dog with two dicks. He'd walk yeah. around everywhere. My granny had a, had a bar and he'd have his little place on the side. You know, Irish, yeah. Irish bullshit, kind of sociological snobbery, yadda yadda yadda. So, but at the core of all this is beef. Mm. And then, of course, we go into the common agricultural policy and who do we support most? Our beef and our dairy farmers. They are the backbone of all our negotiations. And of course, what preserves farming is property rights. So we get this land obsession as well. Back to the land. Exactly. And now we have this crazy situation where our constitution protects property rights over and above property usage. And when I see it, it all comes back to this trauma after the famine, this deeply jaundiced agricultural system based on beef, which rewards large farming and ultimately our whole EU obsession in negotiations has been on agriculture. So much so now that Irish beef could not survive without these massive EU subsidies. It's been estimated that 90,000 Irish farms out of 140,000 are beef farms and of those, 60% would be bankrupt in the morning without the subsidy. So we have leveraged and harnessed our whole agricultural economic policy onto the interests of beef farming, which is unproductive even in the country Ireland, where grass grows for free, where the major input... So what you see in this beef bias has been an entire political, sociological, rural infrastructure biased towards one industry. As a result of that, John, if these global trends are right, and if Western Europeans are going to reject meat because of environmental concerns and animal welfare concerns, and if science, and it's not American science, it's Dutch science, is producing these beef alternatives, we could have a profound shock to agriculture coming here in the next couple of years. And that shock is going to be driven by the interests of European consumers. And those European consumers vote and the environmental movement will be co-opted by the mainstream as it always will be. And suddenly we will see a shift away from supporting beef farmers to supporting vegetarian, vegan lifestyles. And beef farmers will end up being the enemy in a sort of a new ideological battle between more virtuous, vegetarian-driven, plant-based-driven, environmental-friendly ways of living and eating, because as you've always said, eating is the most elemental thing we do, mm. right? Vis-a-vis what will look like cereal polluters who are on the wrong side of an epochal idea about animal welfare and the environment. And that could be coming down the track.
0: But that could be a really good thing. That could be a huge... Not if you're an Irish farmer. Well... <laughs> Well, the thing about Irish land is that it's so much of it is so fertile, apart from out west, yeah. that it's perfect for crops, as opposed to, I mean, you mentioned the pampas earlier, which have, you know, huge herds of cattle out there. You can't grow crops out in that kind of scrubland. It's not suitable
1: for crops. But Irish land is. Well, if you look again, before, so it could be a huge before the famine, the three most significant crops in Ireland, barley. Mm. potatoes, and oats, which grow all the time in Ireland. That has changed dramatically because of what I would call the ranchers, okay? Mm. The landed class in Ireland. But if you look at, and let's come back, if you look at these huge trends that are happening, if you take on board the lifestyle changes of the under 25s, if you look at the environmental implication of continuing to eat meat the way we do, it all suggests to me that maybe the biggest change coming in the next 10 years is going to be a battle not over fiscal policy or monetary policy or regional policy, but over what we put into ourselves as humans. It'll be a massive battle over food and at the vanguard of that battle, will be a battle over meat. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Now, before we let you go, I want to give you a sneak preview of some premium content which you can access via Patreon. Peter Frank ladies and gentlemen.
0: That one of the ways that the Chinese are trying to work that out is to say we're going to do the Belt and Road Initiative. We're going to rebuild the Silk Roads that's going to allow other people to connect into this happy world where all of us in Asia get along with each other because we don't have problems about religion and division and corporations so we won't mention the Uyghurs and so on the Chinese they don't they edit that bit out. But they try to create a structure to say we're stable and Europe and the West has always been difficult and dangerous. And I think we need to confront there's some there's some truth in that and we now need to start working out what is our reply, and what's our response.
1: If you enjoy that you can hear the full episode and much more by joining us on Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. See ya.